You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Okay, so we are at chapter 16 today. Now, in all seriousness, it's not a chapter I've been looking forward to preaching. If you've gone ahead and read it throughout the week, I'd say it's probably one of the hardest chapters in the book of Revelation to preach. The sole subject of it is the full and final outpouring of the wrath of God. And this is our subject, the wrath of God. Now, when we look into this subject, it will have a big effect on us as believers, it should do, but also on those who are unbelievers or who have not fully submitted themselves or given themselves to Jesus. It should make us pay attention. The Bible does say many times that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And you do not want to fall into the hands of the living God unless you are safely in the arms of Jesus. And we will see what that means, really, for us in the world today. The book of Revelation, as we have been studying, has really been building up to this moment. And we are so close now to the end. You could imagine them standing on the edge of the kingdom, that age of a thousand years of righteousness, truth, and justice that will prevail on this earth. But we are just at the final birth pangs now before the kingdom is born, if we could say it like that. There is a gathering storm that is above their heads, but we know thankfully this storm will be very short-lived and then there will be sun for a thousand years on this earth. Chapters 12 to 15, we've been looking at these interval chapters as we keep calling them, and I want to just briefly jump back to chapter 11 because that is actually what set us up for chapter 16 here. It's the blowing of the seventh trumpet. If you remember, we've gone through these six seal judgments and then we've gone through these trumpet judgments, sorry, seven seals, seven trumpets. It says in Revelation 11, Verses 14, the second woe has passed, and the third woe is coming soon, and the seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And within that trumpet are these seven bowls of wrath that we're going to read about today. But it is called the third woe. So that in itself should alert us to the fact that something we are going to be reading is very serious. Do you remember last week, before we get into this, we saw that scene in heaven, the amazing scene of the victorious martyred saints standing on the heavenly landscape, praising and singing a victory hymn to God, the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. It was a victory hymn that focused on the the blessing of the Passover Lamb that redeemed the people of Israel and also of the greater Passover Lamb that redeemed the world to himself in that way. And it was a wonderful song. But one of the things that they did announce was that the righteous judgments of God are about to fall on those who have rejected the Lord and those who have chosen to follow Satan and his kingdom at this time. And if you remember, we ended that chapter with the very unusual scene of God in his temple, filling with the Shekinah glory, the smoke of God's presence, and it says that no one at that point was allowed to enter the temple. And I understood this to mean that at this point, the mercy of God has reached its end, and now the outpouring of the finality of the the wrath of God is coming, and there will be no more chance for repentance at this time bearing in mind pretty much everything else we've read in the entire Bible leading up to this point has been to emphasize that the time of repentance is now, but it must come to an end, and that is what we read in this chapter. We spoke, this is a unique time in history. This is the end of the age where the reaping will happen. All that really remains now is for God to remove the ungodly and the wicked in preparation for his righteous kingdom. And this is what these bowls of wrath are about. So let's turn to chapter 1, please. It says, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. 
So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. So here we see the voice, I believe it's the voice of God, who orders the angels to begin this final outpouring of wrath. This is the first judgment. It's physical in nature. It manifests in sores on people. And notice, it is particularly focused on those who have the mark of the beast and who are worshipping him at this point. And if you remember, this is a time when it's not even like today, when people sort of live in this middle grey area, not really thinking they're worshipping Satan or worshipping God. They're just in this grey area. That's a, if I could say a grace, that's something God allows for this age where evil and righteousness go together. In this age, they have decided to reject the Lord and choose the beast at this time. And therefore, there is no repentance for them, it says, when you take the mark of the beast. That is your identification with him and his kingdom, with his worldview, with the way he does things. It's everything. It's an all-consuming thing. And that is their lot. These people at this time will suffer from this first bowl of the wrath of God. Now, it should not surprise us that as we read these last plagues, we do continually see a connection between the plagues of the book of Exodus. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because in the previous chapter, we just saw the author lay down that connection for us. The Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb connects us with what happened at Exodus to the book of Revelation. Exodus 9, you may remember one of the plagues. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln. Let Moses throw it towards the sky in the sight of Pharaoh and it will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast through all the land of Egypt. Very similar parallels. We'll see that with a few of these things. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like blood, that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. You may remember again a very similar situation in Egypt. The Nile turned to blood, didn't it? And here we have the oceans turned to blood. Now, unlike the seal judgments, we saw something similar to this in the seal judgments, but it said only a third of the ocean was affected. Here we have everything that's left, and there's not much of the earth left that's in form as we know it at this stage, but now it is being destroyed. And this tells us that these last sets of judgments happen very, very quickly. These are the contractions, the birth pangs that happen very, very quickly right before the birth actually takes place because mankind cannot live without the ocean in this, in this world. It's vital part of the food chain and it is completely destroyed here. You think of all the dead creatures that will be around at this, that, just think of the devastation that that will cause. We can't really imagine. But you will not have any water, any sea creatures, anything like that going on here. It's completely different and you get this putrid, river or water. We can't really imagine what it's talking about, but we know that it's going to be an ecological disaster in that sense. Verse 4, then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them, to, given them blood to drink and they deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The third bowl destroys the last remaining fresh water sources on earth. So we have had the oceans destroyed, and now we've had any fresh springs and rivers and all these things destroyed. Mankind cannot last for long with these things gone. That is the point here. It also shows us really just how close we are to the second coming at this point. And by the end of this chapter, we'll see we're at the book of the Battle of Armageddon. But we have this weird interlude here. 
We're going through these bold judgments, and then we almost have this, this little stop in verse 5, where one of the angels feels the need to suddenly stop and say, Righteous are you, who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. It's an interlude. The angel proclaims the holiness of God in the midst of judgment. God is totally righteous in his judgments here. This is the reality of what we are reading about here. The God we worship is a holy God. That is a theme that reverberates throughout the whole of Scripture. It is the very reason why we had to have the cross. It is the very reason why God hates sin, why he hates evil, why he hates life being taken. All these things come from his holiness. So we should praise God. And we see all throughout Scripture the angels praising God for his holiness. It is the foundation and right and nature of his, his character that means he is the one that will be able to rule the, role, the world in righteousness and holiness. But it also means that where there is sin, there will be judgment. That is what holiness means. And that impacts all of us in this world. Now, we know the gospel story, we'll talk about more as we go through this chapter, that is the way he dealt with that. But at this stage here, the righteousness of God is forefront and center as he's bringing these judgments. And I think sometimes we maybe recoil when we read chapters like this about the judgments of God saws such devastation in this world. And of course, I would remind you, this is a very unique period of history when you see the judgment like this brought forth on the earth. It is the preparation for the kingdom. But I think also we underestimate evil in this world. Most of us here have probably been very privileged to live in an era of history and a part of the world that has maybe sheltered us from some of the things that we are thinking of here. And that is really thanks to the spread of the gospel for 2,000 years, that we have seen that restraining influence, that salt and light influence, that upwards track of civilization where the gospel has spread, always moves things towards greater morality and sanctity of human life. And when it decreases, it moves things in the other direction. Think of the period that we are reading about here. The church is gone. Time of grace is over. The beast is ruling. It's like a world we cannot really imagine. But I want to give you a few examples, and these are things I don't really relish talking about, but I feel as we're reading a text like this, we need to maybe just understand what is happening. Just like in the days of Noah, when God said the thought of man's heart was evil continually. In our world, sometimes we don't understand that. We think, well, people are nice sometimes. We're, misunder we're not understanding, that's not what he's getting at here. We're misunderstanding the point. Let me give you a few examples just to show you. And if you are squeamers, just block your ears for a moment, please, if you don't want to listen to this sort of stuff. Let's take an ancient example that interacts with Israel at this time. Let's go back to the Assyrian Empire. They were one of the nations that took Israel into captivity. They were known in the ancient world as the lords of torture. They had the most developed and best psychological warfare that you could really imagine in the ancient world. They were terrifying to all those around them, and they bragged about it. It was how they instilled fear in the nations that lived nearby. And we know a lot about this because they used to do very decorative wall panels in all of their palaces so that visitors, heads of state, would have to walk past them when they came to speak to the king. And this was the idea. You can see the politics involved in that. They were very fond of cutting opposite limbs of people. So they'd cut one hand and one leg so that you couldn't stand up and walk, and then they'd gouge out the eyes of, of prisoners of war. But they wouldn't kill them. They would then leave them to roam around the city as a witness and a testimony to everyone of what happens when you mess with the Assyrian Empire. They also developed, and they were pretty much the only people that have ever been able to do this, they were experts in flaying people. As in, they 
got this down so well that they could flay an entire human being whilst keeping them alive throughout the process. And they, they would then hang their skins across the city walls, again, as part of this psychological warfare. Do not rebel against us, and we are coming for you, basically. Beheading was just commonplace. They are the ones that invented impaling, crucifixion. Burning of children was, again, very commonplace. Castrating males was very commonplace, all these sorts of things. It was part of their life. So when you read the Old Testament, and remember, often you'll see northern kingdom of Israel, Assyria is on their border, getting aggressive. This is why they're so scared. This is why, and in their state where they weren't following the Lord, this is why they were so desperate, going to every other nation, let's team up, let's team up, we've got to stand together against this. They were desperate. Now, we know, obviously, actually, I'm going to dig into this a little bit with you now as we're talking about the Assyrians and Israel. In an un a state, northern kingdom were not following the Lord. They were apostate themselves. They were not following God. The Assyrian Empire was on their border threatening them, and they were scared. This is the reputation that the Assyrian Empire had. They went to anyone they could, except they did not go to the Lord. You think the Lord is scared of the Assyrian Empire? The Lord's not scared of the Assyrian Empire. But the Lord allowed them because they were not following the Lord. Now, if you go to the south of Israel at this same time, you'll find King Hezekiah of Judah on the southern kingdom. Hezekiah was a godly man. The Assyrian army is obviously going to come down through the north and threaten Israel. We see this happening in Isaiah 37. And you get that amazing scene where the king of Assyria sends one of his soldiers to stand at the walls of Jerusalem, and he's taunting them. This is the sort of reputation that they had. He would send there, and he'd, he was saying, basically, don't think that Jerusalem, your God, is going to save you. All the other nations thought that too, and what did we do? We destroyed them. And they know the sort of things that were happening there now. In fact, in Isaiah 37, verse 11, this man says, Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands. And you see the veiled threat in that, and this is the sort of thing they were doing to the nations that they took over. He says, Destroying them completely. Do you think you will be spared too? This is what he's shouting to the king at Jerusalem. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel didn't know what to do. They went to all these other little nations, and in the end... They got taken over by Assyria, taken into captivity. What did Hezekiah do? Let me read it to you in its entirety. Isaiah 47, verse 14. It says, Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord. He spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and listen to all the words of Sennacherib, who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, so they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God." What he's basically saying is they're taunting us, saying that the other nations believed in their gods and it did them no good. But Hezekiah, he's the king of Judah, he knows that the Lord God of Israel is the only true God. So all those other nations were doing was trusting in idols that could not save them. But he wants this to be different now because the king of Assyria cannot stand against the real living God. And we know that the king, the Lord, did say, Jerusalem will not fall to the Assyrians. And if you remember the story... One night, as the Assyrians were about to attack, 
the Lord sent an angel and destroyed that army. He does not fear the king of Assyria. Hezekiah turned to the Lord and he avoided the wrath of God. The Bible often says that allowing the Assyrians to take Israel captive was part of God's judgment on an apostate nation. And in response, though, God would also judge the Assyrians for their cruelty to the nations. The same principle applies to these people that we are reading about in the book of Revelation, and to all people, really. Turning to the Lord is how you avoid the wrath of God. And the wrath of God, remember, is a natural outflow of his holiness. He hates evil. And even we can understand this because we're made in the image of God. You can watch the news sometimes or you can listen to the things I've just told you about those nations and you can know that is wrong, that is evil because we're in the, we know we, it, there's part of our conscience that is made in the image of God, fallen and broken as it is. And we have that tendency to be taken away from it but we still know something needs to be made right when we read about these things. And that's what I really want to have you think about as we're reading about the judgment of God here. It's the cruelty aspect, the evilness of man's heart that we see. And it's not just in the ancient world. Let me give you another one. Sorry to do this to you, but again, I just think it helps raise the contrast of what we're thinking about in the tribulation, lest we actually sanitize what is going on. I study a lot for my PhD studies, the Holocaust, because I'm writing on that subject a lot. This was something I was reading just this week, actually, in an unrelated issue. You know, at Auschwitz, they had a maternity ward. A lot of people did give birth. There were over 3,000 babies given birth during the years of Auschwitz. Of course, none of those really survived. What they would do is they would... It was a squalid. It wasn't really a maternity ward. It was basically squalid conditions, flea-infested, foot-high water, freezing cold. Most people died of diseases in there anyway. But the women would go in there, they would give birth, and then they would drown that baby in a bucket right next to the mother. Now, we can hear things like this, and we know that is evil, right? Like, I think our consciences are designed to understand that, but we also see, we know there's a spiritual realm to this world. This is what Satan does. At this point, what I'm telling you here is a time in the earth when the church is on the earth, the restrainer is on the earth, and evil still breaks through like that. We're reading about the book of Revelation now, where for this last period of time, the restrainer is gone, the church is gone, there is no sultan life, Satan is in full control of this earth, his kingdom and those who follow him. Imagine what is actually happening on the earth at this time. And then when we understand and think of it like that, we should sing the song that we saw sung in heaven from those martyrs, please, Lord, judge the earth. This has to stop, is basically what he's saying. And that is how we need to understand this. It would be unjust of God not to bring his judgment against this sort of behavior at this time. It is the final period, and he wants the earth to move into the era of the kingdom. It is evil and it is rampant. Remember, the age of mercy and grace is over. The restrainer is gone. The church is gone. The beast and those who follow him have free reign at this time for a very brief period. Remember, let me sing those martyrs, Revelation 6. I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And think, I've just given you two ways that people were slain in ancient empires and modern empires. We know Satan is behind those sorts of things. This is how they are probably being slain. Who knows what's going on during this time? I don't even want to think about it. They cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
That's what the martyrs in heaven are crying out. And really, right up until the last moment, the Lord is saying, still someone might come to me. Still someone may repent. I'm still sending out my angel, my gospel, my missionaries, my 144,000, if just one would repent. But then right at the very end, the time has to stop. And those bowls of wrath have to fall. And that is what we're reading about here. It is his response to the martyrs. How long must we wait? Until now. That's basically it. The ones who spilt their, the blood of the saints are being judged now. And the text actually makes this connection for us in verse 6. Remember it says, look, they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Now that must, that's pretty serious language there, but understood in the context of even what we see in history, I, I think we can understand that a bit better. Let's carry on with verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give him glory. So the fourth bowl again impacts the climate. The sun's rays are allowed to scorch the earth. Again, how and why these are clearly supernatural judgments. I'm not going to speculate on them, but take the text for what it says. For me, the most significant thing, even in the midst of judgment like this, it displays the hardness of man's heart at this point. What does it say? It emphasizes this a lot. They blasphemed the name of God, and they did not repent. That is what we have going on here. The judgments expose the reality of their hearts. And we even see this in our day sometimes. When truth or the gospel or judgment is talked about, people's natural reaction is to recoil and get very angry with you. When people react like that, that is usually in ex exposing their own heart an excuse for why their heart is not safe in God. Men not won by grace will never be won. That is the issue here. Men and women not won by grace will probably never be won. Verse 10, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. You see here the judgment again now seems to focus on the leadership of this false kingdom in the final days. It says the throne of the beast and his kingdom. Again, notice the focus here is on the most pure and ultimate expression of evil that we could ever possibly imagine or has ever seen. And God is totally righteous in judging that. The throne of the beast. This is the capital of his evil empire. And there is a supernatural darkness that comes over the world or his kingdom at this time. Again, you'll notice, you remember in the land of Egypt, we had a similar plague. Darkness fell across the land and it was darkness that could be felt. It was so heavy. I think that's the same thing that we have going on here. Such a display of power, I believe, is designed to humiliate the beast and obviously his master, Satan, whose name is the Shining One. The Shining One is unable to break the darkness that the Lord brings on his kingdom. He has no power compared to the Lord. And this, in part, I believe, is divine irony that we see here. For at this time, the world in large, pretty much, has totally rejected him who is called the light of the world. And thus they are left in darkness. And I believe this is actually a preview of their future. Because soon they will be thrown into the outer darkness. And that will be their lot. But still, we see people blaspheme their, the name of God. And do not repent. That is the point. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. The sixth bowl, now this is really the preparation for what is soon to come, and that is known 
as the Battle of Armageddon. I'll explain why it's called that. Popular culture makes a lot of this. It's rarely understood properly. We talked a little about the Euphrates back in the seal judgments. The Euphrates is one of the first rivers ever mentioned in the Bible, connected with the Garden of Eden, so it's no surprise that we see it here connected with the Babylonian end-time religion too, the beginning and the end. Most likely it's because the Antichrist empire is on the banks of the Euphrates in Babylon, and that is where the judgment is focused here. Now, the kings of the east, lots of speculation about who or what these people are. The text actually literally says kings of the rising sun. That's actually what the text, the Greek, reads. But that was a common euphemism for the east. And usually in the biblical context, the east is referring to the Mesopotamian region, not necessarily as far east as Asia, but the text doesn't exclude that. So we, we just don't know. But the idea basically is that these people are being gathered together for a battle going on here. God is gathering the nations of the world together for the final showdown. It's very serious stuff. Verse 13, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. That's where the word Armageddon comes from. Notice we have that unholy trinity mentioned. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Understand, in Satan's idea of what he wants as his kingdom... He's trying to counterfeit what God has, so he has his unholy trinity. That is basically what he's doing in his kingdom. God is now judging all of these, exposing the nature behind them. They are obviously demonically inspired. We know that this is a time of increased spiritual satanic activity. It says that the beast's coming will be in accord with lying signs and wonders, and this is, again, I believe, judging that, exposing these parts of that kingdom. And here they have a specific purpose. They are mounting a final assault against the Lord. They might not know it exactly at this time, some of them, but that is what is happening here. The Lord is now destroying Satan's kingdom and Satan's throne. So he rallies all those troops together that would side with the beast. So they're all in the same place, basically. There's a lot going on here. We'll, we'll see some of it as we continue through this book. Satan's plan is basically to try and destroy God still, to try and destroy God's people. So he calls on all the resources he has to do that. That's another reason why from, the, from their side they're probably gathering. God allows it. We know this is really his plan. From elsewhere in the Bible, we know that this gathering is in fact an attempt to kill and destroy the Jewish people remaining at this time. We've talked about that a little bit previously. However, they think they're going there to destroy the final remnant of God's people so the beast can have his world uninterrupted by Yahweh. But really, they're going to end up fighting against the Lord. And this is the very definition of starting something you cannot finish that we have going on here. Zechariah 14.3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And this is an image of the Lord we don't often think about, isn't it? Because the Lord that we think about is that lamb who came, gave himself, died for us, and absolutely we should think of him like that. But also here, he must be a conquering warrior and a king because the reality is that there are these who stand against him. And whilst they are there, his kingdom cannot come. 
and we want his kingdom to come. And this is what happens here, basically. Verse 15, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Now, notice this is in brackets. <laughs> it's almost like that's trying to understand. It's like a parenthesis in the Greek here. It's an unusual sort of break. I think the author can even feel that what he's writing is so heavy, it's so thought-provoking and awe-inspiring in many ways that he has to sort of stop and give a, a warning here, like he has many times throughout the book. He gives a blessing, a beatitude. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes. Now remember, although we're dealing with future issues, this book was written in the first century for the church. It has been read in every generation of the church ever since. Multitudes have received hope from it. It is a really a reminder that in light of such terrible descriptions of God's judgment, we need to make sure that you are clothed with the garments of salvation, because that is how God has made a way that all this stuff to do with the wrath of God does not concern God's people in that way. It is not for them. It was never supposed to be for them in that respect. Sin ruined the picture. God dealt with that picture, and it is the garments of salvation that mean you will not suffer the wrath of God. We are not to be sleeping as we see these signs getting closer. We will not be caught by surprise by the judgment of God. When it says to be found naked, that means to be unsaved, to be unready. That means you don't have the right garments to enter the wedding feast, so to speak, like one of the parables Jesus spoke of. We do not have the garments of salvation. And this warning is equally true for all times, really. Ask yourself, are you ready for the Lord's coming? If he was to come, are you ready for the Lord's coming? Do you have those garments of salvation? If you don't, you're not ready. And what we're reading about the wrath of God, that concerns you. It may not be the tribulation wrath of God, but the wrath of God, no doubt, you will meet at some point. Matthew 24, verse 42, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and he would not have allowed the house to be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you think not. Be ready is the idea of this. The wrath of God does not concern you. Verse 16, And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Megeddon. That's two Hebrew words. It means Mount Megiddo, basically. It, it, most people assume that this is really a reference to the whole valley that, that has the Megiddo, a little, an old ancient tell. They call it the Jezreel Valley today. It's a massive, flat plain in the north of Israel. You stand on Mount Carmel where Elijah had his showdown and you can look over this whole area. It's an amazing place. And it has served as the staging ground for so many battles in history. Over 200 specific battles have been fought in this particular era, many of them from the Bible. When Deborah and Barak fought the Canaanite army of Sisera, this happened in this area here, Judges 5. When Gideon fought the Midianites, it was Judges 7 in this area here. King Saul was slain here by the Philistines. The young king Josiah, the good king Josiah, was killed by Pharaoh and the Egyptians in the battle, in the, they call it the Battle of Megiddo. There's been many Armageddons throughout history. Napoleon used this as a staging ground to gather his armies before he attacked Syria and these places. Even as late as in 1917, there was a Battle of Megiddo with the British. Lord Allenby fought the Ottomans here in the Valley of Armageddon. Let's look at verse 17. Then the angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It 
is done. Now look, we read all these six bowls, and then we see in the seventh bowl, it's poured out upon the air. Not much is said about it. And you might think, well, that seems a little tame compared to some of the others. This is supposed to be the big finish. You have to remember, what did Paul call Satan in Ephesians chapter 2? According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The air refers here to every domain that Satan operates. This is his final judgment in many ways against him and all his allies who would be following him and his beasts. And it is probably related to the confining of them that we will read about in a few chapters. When all of this is done, that final bowl of wrath is poured out, we have these words, it is done. The wrath of God has been poured out, his purposes have been accomplished, and the new era of the kingdom is now ready to dawn. Mankind's rebellion is finally at an end. What begun in the heart of Satan took root in the heart of mankind when Cain first murdered his brother, flowed into the desire of Nimrod at Babel. That evil desire that has plagued the hearts of man throughout the ages has been dealt with. God's mercy and long-suffering has reached its duration, and now the time to remove this wickedness is gone. And this is the thought. You may notice that the term, it is done, is very similar to another declaration that our Lord made at a certain point of his life. If men will not have the words of our Saviour, it is finished, as he hung on the cross of Calvary, they must have the words of the Lord as judge, it is done. It's one or the other. They're your two choices. It is finished, and that speaks of his mercy, his grace, of what he did on the cross, or it is done, the wrath of God is poured out. Now let's finish this text, and then we'll make a few closing summations. And there were flashes of lightning, lightning and sounds of peals and thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there has not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, the mountains were not found, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Still blaspheming God. The final results of the seven bowl, a massive earthquake. This might very well be the earthquake that attends the pressure of Messiah's foot as it touches down on the Mount of Olives. We read that in Zechariah 14. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a large valley so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. It's going to be a dramatic moment. His foot touches down and literally cracks a mountain in half. That is who we're talking about here. This is the Lord. We see also that Babylon the Great is judged a specific focus of the outpouring of God's wrath. We'll deal with that in the next two chapters are all about the fall of Babylon. Islands move away, huge hailstones rain down. And then finally, we still see that men are blaspheming God in their hearts because these people are forever aligned with the beast and Satan at this point, and they are caught up in that judgment with him. And that is Revelation 16. Now, let me just sum up and put this in context for us a little bit here. This is a terrifying and awesome thought, as the wrath of God should be for, for anyone. When you think about the power that God has, you think about who he is, what he's done. 
you should be able to hold these things in ten, in, together, basically, the holiness of God with the, lo- the love of God, with the mercy of God, and we do this by putting Christ at the centre of it, which is again why I believe Christ is the centre of the book of Revelation. But let's understand this in the larger context of biblical history. The very purpose of creation was for God and mankind to dwell together, in harmony, we could say, to enjoy each other, to be in fellowship with one another. Satan's fall, and thus mankind's fall, brought that death and destruction, that evil into the world. The constant daily acts of gross, unimaginable evil every second of every day for all of mankind's history. God is long-suffering. He is long-suffering. But we should long for that to be over. God has longed for that to be over. And we've just read about the day when he makes sure that is over. We want someone to deal with it. No one can deal with it except God alone. He's the only one righteous and worthy enough to deal with it. Yet, in light of all this, we know that God's love and mercy always work in unison with his holiness. They are not separate attributes. They are attributes that are combined in the person and character of God himself. He wanted his creation to avoid the outpouring of his wrath against such evil. And he was not detached from us. He was not, a, although he is transcendent, he was not a God that sort of set things going and then left and let us, left us to our own devices. He knew that we were all fallen short. Sin had infected this world and he was going to have to do something about it. We were separated, we were broken, we were fallen, and we were all falling short of the holiness required to be in fellowship with him. Yet the very definition of the word saviour is fulfilled by himself. He is a God that wants to redeem his people. And the Bible is the story of how he accomplished that, how he met the need of justice against evil with his love and mercy and desire for mankind to be redeemed. The means that he made for people to be saved really should tell us everything we really need to know about the coming king. That's why we focus so much on the cross of Christ in in the Christian church. We have just read about the wrath of God. It's awesome in every way. It's a power we can't imagine. It's a burning holiness we really can't perceive. Yet as we study the Bible, we also see a mercy and love that we cannot fully understand. But we can experience it. The Lord has made that possible. He sent his messengers to mankind. He sent his prophets to tell us of it. He sent the scriptures to tell us of it. And above all else, he really sent his only begotten son to show us how much he loves us, to die in the place for all those who deserved the wrath of God for their sin. Now with chapter 16 in mind, read with me again the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane. And he went a little beyond them. He fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. As we spoke about in previous studies, the cup he is referring to there is the cup of the wrath of God. We've just seen a little bit what the wrath of God is. You ask how much your Saviour loves you. Think of that moment. He knew what the wrath of God against sin was going to be like, and he knew it was going to be placed upon him in a very short period of time, and this was the will of the Father, and he willingly went to the cross for us. As he was being walked up the hill carrying that cross, he didn't need to do that. This is the Lord. But he did that for us. This is the love of God. This is why when we read about the judgment of God, we must have the full picture of the Bible in our, in our minds or else we're going, to get, we're going to misunderstand certain things. When we hear the cry of the skeptic saying, how can God do this? We answer with, because he's done this. That is exactly why we can do that. And he made a way for us. All of that wrath was placed upon God on the cross. That's why I believe the lights went out on the entire earth at that point. 
This was a moment that he did not want people seeing. This was between the Father and the Son, as the wrath of God. He dimmed the light of the entire earth to spare the dignity of his Son at that point, I believe. It's an amazing thing. We can't even really contemplate it. But having done that, he rose again to new life, defeating forever the power of sin and death that Satan had. And now, by simply believing in what he has done, this simple gospel, this old-time gospel that we preach that is powerful unto salvation, we can be saved from ever having to experience the wrath of God and these things that we've just read about in this chapter. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's the only option. 1 Thessalonians 5, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet we also know, as we've read and as we know by experience in this world, there are many who prefer the kingdom of darkness. Sin is that deep into the heart of mankind, and it is upon the kingdom of darkness that God's righteous judgment will eventually fall and those who associate with it. And the warning that we saw in verse 15 is really basically to make sure that you are not part of it. You do not need to be part of it. You believe in the Saviour, and the wrath of God does not abide on you. John chapter 3, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has already been judged because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. And thus, they're under the wrath of God. And what we're reading about in Revelation is the ultimate expression of that verse there. The wrath, we are, the wrath we are reading about was for those who rejected the light and chose to follow the beast. Those who hate God, seen by their constant blaspheming of his name, refusing to repent, they follow the beast and all of his ways. Yet still we see, really right up until the last moment in this final period, we see God still trying to call people to salvation, literally begging the 144,000 preaching, the two witnesses preaching, and then as we studied a few chapters back, final ditch attempt, you could say, the angel flying across the earth preaching the eternal gospel. Every opportunity is given, but the truth is some love darkness rather than light, and that is why they are under the wrath of God. And then after that bowl is poured out, we hear those words, it is done. And as I said, this is why I believe the book of Revelation teaches us so much about Jesus Christ, because although it's telling us about the wrath of God in the future, its central theme is the unveiling of Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain, so that you may avoid the wrath of God in the future. It holds him up as the only way of salvation. And people get funny about that in this day and age, pluralistic society. Of course, he is the only way of salvation. He's the only one who bore the sins of the world. He's the only one that could take the wrath of God onto his shoulders at that time. And he's the only one that rose again after having done that. That is his qualifications. No one has ever or will ever be able to compete with that. Therefore, there is no other saviour. Therefore, we can say confidently, every other saviour is false. And they are ones that basically will be following the beasts. The lamb that was slain is how you escape the coming storm. And the question for all of us today is, are we really listening to the voice of God calling us? Even if we're already saved, if we claim to be saved, but yet we're not walking in obedience to the Lord, I would challenge you, you haven't heard the voice of the Lord if you are doing that. If you accept the Saviour's words on the cross, it is finished, you will be with him in paradise. If not, 
You will get the it is done from the judge and you will place yourself under the wrath of God against sin. One will lead to eternal life, the other to eternal death. Just like the Lord challenged the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing, the curse. So choose life in order that you may live. Couldn't be more clear, and the choice is there left with us. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.